Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Do you believe you can live a pain-free, vital life? Do you want to step back into your power and share your gifts with the world? Are you ready to make a commitment to you? It's time to reclaim your inheritance as a self-healer. Welcome to the nature of healing. Hello, healers. I'm Roseanne. Mark Baker is someone you know well if you are in the raw milk community, which happens to be a growing community of health-conscious people around the world. I met Mark years ago in Wisconsin when he was here for a local rally and court appearance for Vernon Hirschberger, my raw milk farmer at the time who was criminalized for providing raw milk to his community. Mark showed up to lend support. And at that time, Wisconsin was ground zero for state governments to target anyone associated with promoting raw milk for health reasons. Mark himself has seen his share of tyranny at the hands of state government in Michigan, and we'll talk with him about that too. Just a little bit more about Mark. Mark is a family man and a small farmer. He and his wife, Jill, and their eight children own and live on a small, sustainable farm in northern lower Michigan. There, they build the soil to create a healthy relationship with their food and their community by raising pasture-based foods. What Mark and his family do is known as homesteading, which is based on natural systems that are more ecologically resilient and self-sustaining than commercial farming. And then they supply their high-quality pasture-raised meats and eggs directly to their customers. As those who seek out homesteading already know, these foods are higher in the vitamins supplied by the sun and fresh green grass, especially fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and E, as well as all those important cancer-fighting omega-3 fatty acids. And you can learn more about this on their website, which we'll, we'll discuss later. Mark Welcome to the Nature of Healing podcast. Hi, Roseanne. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I've been wanting to for a while now, so I'm so glad you could take the time to be here. You used to do commercial farming once upon a time, but then you cut up your license and decided to embark in homesteading. What does homesteading mean to you and what draws you uh, to continue sustainable farming in this climate um is it in your blood or is it related to something else all right um that's a loaded question (laughs) Uh, i guess it it pretty well started for us in 2004 i got out of the air force after 20 years um so i'm retired and i was uh 43 years old at the time when i got out and we bought this farm it's an 80 acre farm in northern lower michigan and we uh started to try to decide what we were going to do and i went to a small farms conference and i was introduced to joel salatin at the time and i thought he's nuts but i got one of his books and i started reading it 
And then um, a hog producer here in Michigan started to court us because we had good credit coming out of the military and I had 80, 80 acres to build on. And they wanted us to put in hog houses and raise about, you know, 5,000 hogs in each house. And uh, they made it sound like a pretty good deal. But when I was reading Joel Salatin's information, his books and stuff, I started to think there's two sides to this. And I decided that we wanted to go the more sustainable route. We wanted to be a little bit closer to the earth. And we wanted to be... We wanted the, the farm to be sort of a training, a training ground for our kids. Because when I was in the military, the best men that I worked with were farm kids, without a doubt. They were the best people. So um, we decided not to go with the, the factory farm model and, and went you know, the route that we did. We started with pastured poultry, and we were doing pastured pigs, and we started grazing cattle. and raising produce and then I learned about biochar I did some training classes um, all the while we were going to classes ourselves learning how to grow and, and how to you know, nurture the land and things like that and my wife learned a whole lot about holistic healing um, and a lot of that applies to the land and the farm so then Let's see, it would have been in 2011, the Michigan Department of Agriculture, um, partnering with the Department of Natural Resources, got together and they created what they called a declaratory ruling. And they declared that pigs that were like the ones that I was raising, I was raising mangalitsa pigs at the time, I was one of the first growers in the United States, they declared that any pig that had characteristics like my pigs had were feral. So they had a list of characteristics like, you know, their ears being erect or floppy, um, their hair being straight, um, brown hair, black hair, uh, straight tails, curly tails. And then the kicker was, and other characteristics not currently known. Um, so they, they made this declaration and they wanted everybody like me, all growers like me, to dispose of our property. And they, they called it depopulation. And uh, we, we were just out of the military. Um, I was a big regulation guy, you know, anybody that's in the military is. And we questioned their declaratory ruling. I mean... I just said, how can you tell me that I have to get rid of my animals just because you say so? And then they, they came across with this, well, your animals could, if they escape, they could be bad for the environment. You know, um, feral swine can be bad, you know. And they said that we had about 5,000 of them in the state. <clears throat> but nobody had ever seen them, you know. So when I questioned them, um, I became public enemy number one as far as the Department of Ag goes and the Department of Natural Resources. Like, who do you think you are questioning us? And I was just stubborn enough and Irish enough to just push them just a little bit and then a little more and a little more. And uh, we wound up suing them for clarification of their declaratory ruling. Like, we wanted to get them in a court of law 
and have them explain their their declaratory ruling. You know, they're saying a pig with a straight tail or a curly tail is feral because we say so. You know, that was basically their shtick. And push came to shove, and um, we wound up in court, and they moved for dismissal, and they moved for dismissal because we were going to, we were going to win and they did not want their, their noses rubbed in it in front of the public. The big, the big reason they didn't, what they didn't expect to have happen was they didn't expect so many people from the public sector to be, uh, interested in this and want to know more. You know, a lot of people were outraged. It made national news. It went on for a long time. It's a big deal. And then we won. So, uh, I figured I was just going to get back to my farm and operation, raising my pigs and my restaurants. And I had a bunch of retail stores and we were selling a lot to people. It, it, things were going really well. Um, but when we tried to get back to business, uh, we found out that the department of agriculture, they don't forget. <laughs> and so they would go to my customers and raise questions about, our operations and my customers started to drop off. You know, they were basically intimidated by the department of ag and then the department of ag would try to intimidate me. They, they rolled up my driveway. I think it was five times. They always came with two state police vehicles and numerous state police men and women. Um, the state police people were very good because they were just detailed to come. They didn't really know why. And then after a while, I realized I needed to go straight to them and tell them, this is why you're here. You're being used as a prop for these people to intimidate me, you know, and, and I'm ex-military and a lot of them are ex-military. So that didn't really work for the department of ag. But then after the last time that they came, um, I realized that my license was a contract with them that gave them the authority. I had given them the authority to inspect my facility. So then they would, they would inspect my facility at times where it was a pain and, um, you know, in a way that was intimidating, but they did have the right to come up my driveway. So as soon as I did not renew my licenses, that was it. They didn't come. They don't have the authority to come up my driveway. Now I am protected by the fourth amendment to the U S constitution. And so those same men that would accompany them up the driveway would also accompany them off because I'm a United States citizen and the fourth amendment to the constitution limits what these organizations can do to me. You know, and the department of agriculture is notorious for jumping on, jumping all over people and, especially farmers. So that's why we went to the homesteading model, right? We got mm -hmm. away from the, the commercial model. You know, if we have to give labels to things. So now we still raise quite a bit of produce. We still raise, uh, you know, we still doing hogs. We're still doing pasture poultry, still do eggs, still run our butcher shop. We do everything that we did before. We just don't sell to restaurants and we don't sell to um, retail stores. And the reason we can't sell to those entities is because they also have contracted away their ability to do business with whoever they want. 
see under their contract, say a retail store, they've contracted with Department of Ag to only do business with farmers who have contracted with the Department of Ag. So it's it's sort of a scheme. You have to be in their club, and you have to abide the, by their rules to do business in their court. And so we just we're just not in their court, and they don't have the authority to talk to us. They don't have the authority to come up our driveway. They can't fly their drones over my place. Well, they can. I, I wish they would. That was fun, and I'd love them <laughs> to do it again. Um, so we're just on a different field, you know, and I don't have to listen to what they say. I don't have to respond to any of their baloney. And so I just don't. And they know it too. They know that they have no more authority in my life than is allowed to them by the U S constitution. So when we went through, I'll call it the pig thing. I'll just call it the pig thing from now on. When we went through that, the reason we prevailed is because in the court of law, um, I was just a loose enough cannon to ask the judge questions about the U.S. Constitution. Does it apply in this courtroom? But strangely enough, they don't want to talk about the U.S. Constitution in the court of law here in the United States of America. They don't. It's basically like a contract court, and they wanted me to comply with their contract. And so when I dumped the contract, I just didn't renew it. Now it's a constitutional issue. And the, the Constitution is very clear about in the Fourth Amendment. And they can come up my driveway if I invite them or if they have a warrant. And to get a warrant, it's, it's a process where they have to go to a judge and they have to swear that I'm breaking a law. They, they think I am breaking a law. And... You know, there's nothing that I do on this farm that could possibly be breaking a law. They might say that I'm growing dope or, or maybe I'm manufacturing, you know, methamphetamines or something like that. But there's, there's actually no evidence that I'm doing that because I'm not. I'm just not doing it. I mean, my farm is open to anybody that wants to come and see what we do, except those guys. I would, they've given up their right to come on my property. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we learned through that whole process how to navigate this thing and um, hit the press the test button to find out whether or not, you know, that's the truth. So when I tell all the farmers about this, they're more inclined to call a Department of Ag and say, is what Mark's saying true? And now the Department of Ag is not going to back me up. They they speak in very nebulous terms. Uh they like to intimidate people and, and people in the United States are very intimidatable. You know, they, they kind of run to the government to ask them what they can do all the time. And that's a big mistake. That's a big mistake. So in the homestead model, we, we still do the farm. Um, it, it is in my blood now. I mean, isn't it? I decided to retire off the farm and move to someplace else. I would still, want to raise my own food because of the economy of it and the fun of it. Um, so it's in my blood as far as that goes. But I think right now, at least for a while, there's a big, there's a big sucking sound out there for information about homesteading. 
and um, me and Jill have been real fortunate in the people that have come into our life and helped us with some of these problems that we've had with the state. So we we're doing things right now to kind of kind of pay back and kind of be like uh, evangelical farmers, you know, like spread the word about uh, homesteading and small farming and things like that. It's very admirable. I think it's in Jill's blood too. (laughs) To do what you two do, you know, it's a rare thing today. Um, You are someone who's not easily intimidated. And so what is the climate in Michigan for others to – to be able to follow in your footsteps, especially as we see this flooding in the Midwest that has limited planting and harvesting for commercial croplands, should they, should people who go into what you're doing understand the Constitution as well as how to farm? That's an excellent question. Um, I, I think whatever a person is going to do, they should understand the Constitution. Uh, in our case, one of the things that we had to do in the pig case, uh, the attorney general of the state, uh, he's responsible for protecting my constitutional rights. See, I voted for him. He's an elected official. He's responsible. He takes an oath to protect and defend the constitutional rights of the constituency that elect him, as well as the county sheriff is too. But if neither of those two will do it, then it's up to me as the head of household. And in reality, I can wield that sword much better than they can because they're political figures. You know, I don't have a political axe to grind one way or the other. I just know that the sword that I have that has, you know, the Constitution engraved on it, and it's all you really have to read is the... uh, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, it's less than a page if you download it and read it. That, that is the limitation of government entities. And that's everybody from the county employees, the snowplow truck drivers, to the President of the United States. That's their limitation. That's what they're limited to. And it really works. When you wield that, you will find out it is the supreme law of the land and it is respected. It's just that American citizens, they're, they're told, and it, it gets repeated over and over and over that, well, the Constitution, it's been watered down. You know? Well, it, the only reason that you think it's watered down is because you don't pull that sword and swing it. But don't expect an elected official to pull that sword, sword and swing it, because you know how they are. You know? They're in it for themselves. If you want to protect your operation, your family, as far as farming goes, you have to be prepared with the U.S. Constitution as your, your sword. You know? So, um, let's see, the question you asked me, <laughs> I lost track of it. In my oh, yeah. There. Should, what was should, the question? In this kind of climate, should the people who want oh, to go yeah. into Yeah. Yeah, they should definitely know the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Definitely. You want to know that. That is what makes this country special from every place else in the world, and I've traveled around a lot. And I would, I would never want to live any place else other than the United States. And it's because of our Constitution. It's because of it. Now, 
the Constitution is really strong, but there's always going to be opposition to it. And right now, uh, the, the climate in Michigan is we, we have a lot of opposition to the Constitution, but it basically comes from, as far as agriculture comes, it comes out of, you know, like big agriculture lobby, right? They don't like the peasants, you know, everybody to be able to farm. They want to keep farming for themselves. Like they want to be a small group of people that farms all the land here in Michigan and then doles the food out to us. And they also make all the profits. They want to be able to control, you know, feed prices. And they also want to be able to control what they're going to pay for a gallon of milk. And it's sort of like a politically elite class of people that doesn't actually farm and they could probably manage just about any industry and put themselves at the top of the, the pyramid, I guess, if you want to put it like that. And they're, you know, they're, they're taking dollars off the top. That's what they do. You know? So they want to keep it to their people farming. And so for us, if we teach other people to farm, and, and we define farming as whenever you grow proteins or carbohydrates for yourself. So you could be growing some tomatoes on your porch. You're farming. You might not think you're taking a big bite out of industrial agriculture, but it's a bigger bite than you think. You know, if you don't buy any tomatoes from the store because you've got your own tomatoes, that hurts somebody someplace. So if we have a lot of people farming, um, then industrial ag, you know, they don't have the market that they would like. They would like to have everybody. They would like to have everybody in the world if they could. Um, but it's not a good idea. And, you know, from a military point of view, I would say that anytime we centralize basic necessities, it's a bad idea. And we're, we've seen this over and over again to where there's an outbreak of something or other, and it's usually from the big operations. I hardly ever see, or I don't think I've ever seen, small operations involved in a like a you know a thirty million pound recall of meat. Um, that's always the big operations that have that. <clears throat> right. So um, I, I guess you do need to know what your rights are when you go into a farming operation. And then I, I think you could go and talk to the Department of Ag. They're going to ask you to partner with them, um, but you have to listen critically. You're not required to partner with them. I mean, this, this isn't, you know, China. You know, you know you, you're not required to, you know, this is, this is a re representative republic that we live in. Um, a lot of times the word fascism gets thrown around and their system is actually fascist because fascism is privately owned and then government run or government regulated. So if you partner with the Department of Agriculture, um, they're going to say, okay, you can sell here, here, and here, and we want you to do it this way. Well, they're actually running your business for you. Um, and so I, I think it's a bad idea to partner with anyone in the far, in the homesteading business. My partner is my, my wife 
and my employees are my children. And as my children leave the home, you know, my employees will leave, leaving and eventually it'll just be me and Jill and we'll have, you know, some laying chickens and, and a garden and, and a few broilers for ourselves and maybe some cows. But right now we're feeding a pretty good sized group of people. Plus my, um, <clears throat> with eight kids, four of them are out of the house. We're feeding their spouses and their kids and, and then friends too. You know, if people, uh, come to us and they want to buy from us, we're, uh, we're able to do that, uh, under the U S constitution, the government cannot intervene in commerce unless we elect to allow them to intervene, right? We're, we're governed by consent here in the United States. So if I wanted to sell you a chicken, it's a sale between me and you. It's the same as if I wanted to sell you a puppy or if I wanted to sell you a bale of hay, or if I wanted to sell you, I don't know, a lawn chair, you know, it's between me and you. I don't have to bring the department of agriculture in on any of that stuff. Um, but some of your audience might be saying, well, what about, uh, farmer's markets? Well, most of the good farmer's markets are on county property and the county is going to play by every rule that, uh, the Department of Ag ever thought of, and they're going to require that you are insured, have an insurance policy, and that all you know you're totally compliant with the USDA and and, and the Department of Ag, your local Department of Ag, and your health department. Well, it, it ties you up, it binds you. If, for instance, if people in the state of Michigan want to buy poultry at a farmer's market, that uh, chicken has to be processed at a Michigan Department of Agriculture licensed shop, right? And I used to have one of those. My shop used to be licensed from them. So I could grow chickens. I could process them here. I could take them to the farmer's market and I could sell them. But now that I don't have a license, I can't take them to the farmer's market and sell them. So it, it, it did limit us a little bit, but it opened up other, other avenues that we never knew existed. Um, you know, the homesteader can, can create a database, uh, that would be a much better, a much better marketing technique than getting up at O dark 30 in the morning, hauling all your junk to uh, a farmer's market, Standing around there till nine o'clock until somebody wanders through and walks past you. And then you wind up taking most of your stuff home. I mean, some farmer's markets are pretty good. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, uh, put them all in a box like that. But our experience is we would bring home, uh, over a third of what we brought to the market. And, you know, you never want to bring too little. You don't want to sell out. So. I never saw it as a real good thing. Plus, uh, I always like to pay myself pretty good money per hour. And when I go to a farmer's market and I just sit on my thumbs, uh, I'm not, I'm not really making any money. I'm not, it's not churning dollars like I would if I was, uh, if I did it more efficiently and in a more efficient way actually is with a, a database of friends. And when people call us and they want to buy something from us, they go on a database. And then when we have a lot of something, like let's say we're going to butcher some cattle, then we'll send out a blast over the internet. Like, hey, we're going to have 
some beef and if you need it let us know and people come right to the farm and pick stuff up there's no there's no middleman at all it's direct marketing so it's a good good way to go yeah you do a great service for you do a great service for the people who really want to know their farmer, know the food, the quality of the food, how those animals were raised. Um, more and more people are looking for that kind of food because it's becoming rarer. Um, and just to go back to the, you know, your your two-year battle in the courts over your your heritage hogs. Um, Pete Kennedy from the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, he defended you and yeah. and and helped that outcome, you know, of this dismissal. Um, did he use the constitution as part of your defense or how did that, how did that come out? No, actually, um, if you're a lawyer, uh, you are licensed with the state. So if the state feels strongly enough about something, then they have a back channel to you and they can take your license. So the lawyers uh, have to stay within a parameter. And if, if, it, if they're not going to bring the Constitution into the court, then, then they're just not going to. It's, it's up to the, you know, it would be up to me. Yeah. At so that that's time, what you did. That, is that what you did, Mark, then at a certain point? I did. But I did it informally. I did it informally. Uh, I didn't, I did not realize that the lawyers that we were using were, uh, officers of the court, right? So I may have been paying them to represent me, but they worked for the court, basically work for the state. They're licensed through the state. Yes. So for them to, to beat up on the state could be detrimental to their career. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's the way that works. Instead of them going into the courtroom and saying, look, judge, Mark has the constitutional right under the Fifth Amendment. It, it says that my life, my liberty, and my property is protected under due process of law. Due process of law. And that's all you need to know about the Fifth Amendment concerning this, right? And here we have an entity like the Department of Agriculture that creates what they call a declaratory ruling. The Department of Ag doesn't make laws, you know. The legislature makes laws. It has to go through the, you know, our, our state reps, then our state senators, and then it goes to the governor's office to be signed into law. Department of Ag doesn't make laws. They don't. They can make policies and regulations and all this stuff. But if it's repugnant to my constitutional rights, I am under no obligation to follow it. And they know it. They know it. But they use threats and intimidation to make us believe that it's law. And Americans are kind of dumb about the law. We don't, we don't know how that works. And when we are in question, we go to a lawyer to ask the question. And remember, the lawyer's work for the court. So they don't want to talk constitution. They want to talk, you know, case law. They want to talk statutes. They want to talk, you know, let's, let's create an argument and argue straight tails, curly tails instead of constitutional rights. 
So in my case, I knew that under the Fifth Amendment, I had the right to raise a pig on my property however I wanted to, unless they had a law saying that my pig was illegal. Like I, you know, we all know armed robbery, it's illegal. If you do it, there's no court case. You're, you're cuffed and stuffed and you're arraigned and you go to jail, right? Because that's a law. But things in agriculture are not quite the same because there's nothing here that's illegal that we're doing, right? So in that case, yeah, Pete was a big hand on this, but I mean, he was restrained too because he's an officer of the court, not where, not in my state, but in his state he was. So he was restrained, but we were able to have candid conversations about the constitution. And I made videos at the time alerting the public as to what was going on. My lawyer was watching those videos. The court was watching those videos. Department of Ag was watching those videos. And they knew I was on to something that would really put them out of business. And this is pretty much what I'm communicating with you now. We contractually give away our constitutional rights all the time. And we shouldn't. We should not do that, you know, if, if we want to be free people. Thank you for saying that. That's so important to hear over and over again because we always hear the opposite over and over and over. Um, I don't know if you know this, but after your case was settled, um, Indiana wrote an amendment to clarify a regulation that the regulation did not apply to hogs raised on a farm. So, uh, and then... Which is great. You know, I mean, there's so many laws. We don't even know how many laws are out there. And then they can do the opposite. And in Minnesota, um, not based on your case, but they've recently made it worse for raw milk farmers when they changed the definition of what a farm is. <laughs> so they can, you're right. It's so corrupt. They can change words uh, on a whim and make it just make farmers have to shut down immediately. So it does pay to know your constitutional rights more than ever. It so, sure does. Yeah. So we've talked about that the constitutional end of, of what you do. What is your typical day of activities uh, on the farm? I know you've shared some Facebook videos, you know, what homesteading is day to day. I remember um, watching the birth of new pups from your dog. Um, but what's a typical day for yeah. you on the farm? Um, we, we've got about five milk cows and so the first thing that we do is we milk. Um, and that'll generally be, you know, seven o'clock or so, seven thirty, right in there. And it's either me or my daughter that does that. And then we bring the milk into our butcher shop or our food processing area and we strain it, get it in jars, get it in the refrigerator. <clears throat> then we'll usually have breakfast and then um, I'll line the kids out for the day what we're going to need to do. The little kids, they usually just help a little bit, you know, until lunchtime or something like that, and then we cut them loose so they can just play. Um, I usually work like a regular 8- or 10-hour day doing what I do. And my wife homeschools the kids. Um, there's only four of them home now. You know, four are out. And we have special projects going on, like the, the farmhouse we live in is pretty old. And when we were commercial farming, it's a big race to just 
keep your bottom line up because you just have all these things that you have to spend money on. Uh, but now that we're homesteading, it's slower pace. It's more diverse. So we do other stuff. You know, we do way more diversified stuff. And uh, we take, take more time to, to just play, just go out and have fun, do fun stuff, you know, do stuff like this. Also, we, we're focusing more on the education part of it. Um, I, who knows what's down the road, but it seems like there's a, a lot of people that would like to know if they were going to do something like this, all right, what's the first step and how do I get connected up with a network of people that's doing it, you know, so I can ask questions and things like that. Oh yeah. We do a, we do a live stream on Wednesday nights on uh, Baker's green acres, YouTube at seven o'clock Michigan time. So that's Eastern time. And people can write in questions and I just sit behind my phone and, Jill tells me the question and then we answer the question and yuck it up a little bit. But it's, I think it's important to get the information out about how to do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And really from what you're talking about, it, it sounds really idyllic actually. I don't know why people wouldn't want to do it, <laughs> but they just need to know how to do it. And I saw from your website that you are co-teaching kind of on the road classes with another farmer this fall in Shady Grove Farm in the UP. What is yep. that class? What, what's that class going to involve, and how do people sign up? Okay, this is what's called uh, the hog harvest. Hog harvest, and I guess this is going to be our tenth or eleventh year. I'm not really sure, but we we raise mangalitsa pigs. There, it's a Hungarian pig. It's a red meated pig. Sometimes you hear them referred to as a heritage pig. So it's more like pigs that came off Noah's Ark, you know, before they were all hybridized and everything. And they grow really good on just about anything. They take a little bit longer to, to, to feed out. Um, but we, as homesteaders, feel like the more stuff that you can do on your farm, like the less you have to contract out, like you raise a pig and then you can process it then you're ahead of the game monetarily. You're ahead of the game um, sustainably. You're ahead of the game, let's see, from a resilience point of view. You know, you're very resilient. That's a, that's a great word to, to bring into farming, I think, is being resilient. To be able to shift gears and, you know, bob and weave with the seasons and, the needs of the farm and things like that. Like if, if I'm going to go to a butcher and I have to haul pigs to a butcher, not only is it bad for the pigs cause it fills them up with adrenaline. Then I got to pay the butcher a bunch of money. I got to take a half a day to haul them there. And then I got to take another half a day to pick them up and they might not do the work that I want them to do because typically butchers, hire a bunch of people and you know they're just really minimally skilled employees and so the, the product is not consistent you know so but if i do it myself and i take my time at it i can become very proficient at it and i can do it just the way i want to and then if i read a little bit i can learn how to do other things like how to preserve meat how to salt meat how to hang meat how to make hams prosciuttos 
all kinds of stuff, bacon, you name it, you can learn all of that stuff. So the hog harvest class is, is that in a nutshell. We start on, well, the one we do here on Baker's Green Acres starts on Friday. About noon, we kill our first pig. So we're starting with live pigs for the, for the attendees or the, the students. Uh, then we scald and we scrape the pig, and the students do that. I just kind of oversee it and, you know, kind of help them and talk to them while they're doing it. And then we'll open the pig up. We'll eviscerate it. I do the first one. Usually the students do the second and the third or the fourth if we do that many. And then at the end of the day, on the first day, we, we have pigs that have been cut in half from nose to tail. And then they're laid out on tables, and this is in November, so then they'll, they'll be cool the next morning when we show up for the next day's class at 9 o'clock. <clears throat> and then on Saturday, we, it's a long day. Um, we break the, the hog halves down into what they call primal cuts, and there's five primal cuts, and all the students get to do it, so they actually get to have their hands on a knife and you know we go through safety procedures and all that stuff we've been fairly lucky in 10 years no, no really bad um wounds from knives or <laughs> never had to take anybody to the hospital put it that way and then um we break a few of the primal cuts down even further ones that people would know you know we run through the basic stuff pork chops bacon uh, shoulder steaks, things like that, kind of the easy stuff. And then the next day we get into the charcuterie, and that is the salting of hams, that's the grinding of sausage, the different chemistry involved with uh, curing meat. And, and most of the stuff that we're teaching really wouldn't fly with the USDA because they have their their criteria, and they want you to add like heavy-duty nitrates to meat to to prevent uh, spoilage, and that wasn't done prior to World War II. This is all post World War II, and this is what you know Department of Ag people learn in university is how to how to do it correctly. I'm doing air quotes there, but what you have to consider is you're going to eat this meat. And if it's just loaded with nitrates, the bacteria can't break the meat down. Well, how do you think it's going to break down when you put it in your, in your stomach that's full of bacteria that's supposed to break it down? So we, we try to do it in a way that it's going to be consistent with uh, the way it was done for a lot of years before, before World War II and all of the nitrates came on online. So it's a pretty cool class. Uh, We've put a lot of people through it. We meet a lot of interesting people. Uh, we usually have about six people per pig. So there's plenty of hands-on. And then the, we, call the class, we call our program, you know, the, the umbrella name for it would be Anyone Can Farm. That's to kind of contradict what Department of Ag people say is, no, only we can farm and people that we like can farm and people that follow our rules can farm so we say no anyone can farm and that came from remember that movie ratatouille yes you know you remember that 
Yeah. Well, you remember the, the the good chef, the the one that was dead. He was the fat dead chef. He <laughs> says anyone can cook, and even the rat could cook, right? So that's kind of we we stole that from that movie, and it's kind of stuck. So anyone can farm on the road is when we go to a host farm, and then you know we forward to them a list of stuff that they're going to need. So about your class, this is what I see you describing. You're saying that Big Egg wants codependency on the chemical manufacturers while you are teaching self-sufficiency or DIY. You're training the next generation of self-sufficient farmers. I would love to take a class like that. So you have one class on your farm in November and you're going to this other class as a guest teacher or on the road class earlier than that in the fall? Yes, that'll be earlier. Uh, I go up to the UP. It's cooler up there than it is here. This is uh, Randy Buchler we're talking about here. I think you may know of him, hmm. um, but we haven't set a date yet for his. He, okay. he kind of has his own clientele up there that takes the class. But like okay. the one here at our place, because of your position, you could audit the class and you get to come and just like pay your own expenses driving and stuff like that. And we, w we don't charge you for the class, but you could. Um, oh, I could maybe report on what's happening or. Yeah. Interview people that are taking the class. We have some very interesting people that want to travel long distances to learn how to butcher a pig. Yes, <laughs> I would. I think that's going to become a pretty uh, important qualification for survival, possibly in the near future, if the world is going the way it's going. I mean, people are talking about survival and depending on where the politics is going, you know, it's so unpredictable these days. So something like this, I think it's important for people to consider learning. I would be one really happy to come out there. That would be great, Mark. Okay. Where do you want to go next? Well, I, I think you kind of touched it there for a sec. And, you know, you talked about sort of, I guess it would be under the, the category of prepping. You know, like where you hear prepping um, channels and all this stuff, and they're talking about, well, there's going to be some sort of catastrophe. Is it going to be geopolitical? Is it going to be... A weather event? Are we going to have a power down? Is there going to be a nuclear exchange or something like that? You know, I don't know. I don't know about that. But and I, I really wouldn't even want to speculate on what's going to happen. I don't know. But as a former Boy Scout and then as a career military person, I was always taught to be prepared. You know, I don't like to be surprised. I don't like to be surprised when I need a flashlight and I, I'm surprised that, oh, my, my kids have been using it and the, the batteries are dead. I don't, I don't like that. And so I constantly, I constantly prepare. And I'm not really a, like a doomsday prepper, anything like that. But as a farmer, I have to prepare for the winter coming up. And then when it's winter, I have to prepare for the spring that's coming up. So. I'm, I'm into prepping. I'm really into that, but maybe not for the same reasons as other people, but I don't think it really matters. And this is what I wanted to communicate is everything that's going on right now, this 
there seems to be a lot of unrest in our country and people are looking for an answer like uh you know th- maybe the answer is well if we could only get this guy elected or if we can get this guy reelected or or whatever the answer might be in that and I don't know I really don't know because as you and I talk today there's information and then there is disinformation and they've gotten so good at disinformation it's hard to know anymore but there are things that I can know and those are the things that I talk about in my videos um, real live things that you can get your hands on for for instance today I I had a, a big plant a big uh, sunflower plant that went over in a rainstorm yesterday and when you know, it was a tragedy because it broke off right at the bottom and there's beautiful flowers on it and everything. But I pulled it up and then I weighed it. It was 22 pounds. And then I made a video and I, sh- I showed that, yeah, this is a tragedy that this thing broke off. But it's also food that I can feed to my rabbits now. So it's not a complete loss. And what did it cost me? It cost me very little. But that's just an example. Um, I think that this program of homesteading is something a person can do and it helps them to feel as though they're getting themselves to a place where they can survive. And maybe nothing will happen. But if nothing happens, I'm still going to be able to butcher the pigs that are in my my pasture right now. and you know, feed them to my family. I'm still going to be able to milk the cows. If, if people can get into homesteading or if they're looking for something to get into that will calm them down for a little while and help them to feel as though they're doing something, I think it's a good bet. And I come at this from somebody who's been to a lot of different countries and been involved in a lot of conflicts. And it always comes down to food, water, and shelter, and then a, a means to, to protect your food, water, and shelter. You know, um, you don't want to be in a situation where, like in Venezuela, where they're, where they're killing animals out of the zoo just to survive. Or more likely, what, what would happen is you wind up standing in a really long line behind a semi, and when it's your turn in line you get up there and they just hand you something and that's it and it could take all day to get something and it may be like bullion cubes or something and you could say well i don't like these and they say well then that's too bad that's what you're getting and you have to feed your family with that and then you're back out the next day standing in the same damn line but you don't want that you want to be able to put yourself a little bit ahead you ever hear the uh the saying you don't have to outrun the bear you only have to outrun the next fattest camper. You don't have to have, you know, a totally sustainable operation. Every little thing that you do to make yourself more self-sufficient, it puts you, you know, a click ahead of the next guy. You know, so like in my case, if there was big time food shortages, I wouldn't be standing in line for food. I just wouldn't. I would be hiring people to come and, and help me process the the stuff that I have. Because then, you know, there'd 
be a need for it. Right now, food is cheap everywhere, but it could dry up in a heartbeat. I mean, I think we have three days worth of food on the shelf at the supermarket, and so that could dry up very quickly. And and then the the camper that knows how to butcher a cow, for instance, he all of, all of a sudden becomes a hot commodity in his community. Or, you know, if if things got really bad and you had to you had to butcher your your pets, let's say, if you could do it and you were prepared to do it, that would that would be a good thing. It would it'd be good to know that. That's kind of morbid, isn't it? Let's let's just keep it to farm animals then. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I you've had a lot of really important tips here for people to even just contemplate and shifting their perception about how they might think differently about surviving if you know all the food on the store shelves is is gone and just based on our discussion here i could summarize you know basic five points that you've just shared with us one know your rights um two know where a good source of water is uh three know how to forage for your own food or grow your own food uh, four, know your community. And five, you know, know how to prep for something like this so you're, you're not caught off guard. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good summary right there. Well, you did an excellent job, Mark. And um, how do people get a hold of you if they want to know more? Can you give us your website? Yeah, our website is bakersgreenacres.com. And my email address is bakersgreenacres at yahoo. Great. And, and for more information, they can also check out your blog. I've, I've looked at that too. Yeah. Yeah. My wife does a lot of that. She just uh, talks about farm life and the lessons that we learn and things like that. And we also have a bunch of videos on Bakers Green Acres YouTube channel. Excellent. And I can put some of those links in the show notes for people to go and follow up there. Sure. By then, will you know the dates for the homesteading uh, on the road class? I should. Yes. Okay. I should. Well, we'll get that in when, when you know. And then thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and hearing your strong voice and, you know, talking about rights. It's so important. It gets left out of the conversation often. I think you're such an important voice at this time. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd like to do it again sometime. <laughs> okay, for sure. We'll, we'll do that again. And for my listeners, until next time, healers, lots of love. Visit or consult with Roseanne Lindsay, naturopath at natureofhealing.org where you can find her books at her website and at amazon.com Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.